I freaking love this book. Um, I love that you recommended it. I would not have heard of it otherwise. And mm -hmm. also what I sent you is it's so funny how it was the exact same book as the uh, team of teams that I read all of whatever it was. I think the, the literally the next book. Yeah, that is weird. So the major issues that I had outlined from the book and then that you had added on from No Rules Rules to so talking about the history of Netflix, which also interesting, I don't know if you felt this, to read the book now while Netflix lost like 60% of their stock value. I'm curious if they've changed any of the things, um, but I thought so much of their stuff was really interesting. Mm -hmm. So we talked about um, four different topics. So one, the pushing decision-making down to lower level employees as opposed to reserving at the top. We want to discuss that from the context of how law firms can address that with ethical issues that come up for lawyers, uh, where you can lead by control or where you can lead by context versus where you have to lead by control in law firms for ethical issues and other reasons, bonus and pay structures for different types of employees for ethical and other reasons for law firms. And then I love um, the keeper test. So how they view candor being a big thing to discuss, you know, how do we find keepers? What do we value in a keeper? What makes somebody a keeper? That kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it, it was the, the best book I've read in a long time. Couldn't put it down. And it's hard. I don't know if you found this, but in this, did I used to be a big reader, but now with TikTok and other ways of getting entertained, it is hard to find the discipline to read a book. I did not feel that way with this book. Every single chapter, I was just, I was like, wow, mind blown. Like, this is so radical. Like the culture at Netflix really is very, very radical and very different from what you see anywhere else. And it, in, in a way that is so intriguing to those of us who are sort of rebellious by nature. It's so funny. You mentioned I'm writing my uh, newsletter this week. I'm writing about the TikTokification of society, you know, the instant gratification, the faster stuff. I, I think. I think your thought is not unique, which makes it as easy as ever to produce a book, but as hard as ever to write a book well enough that it cuts through. I don't even want to say the noise. It cuts through exactly what you're talking about, the ability to watch 400 reels uh, or TikToks instead of reading a full book. Yeah, it's the attention span. Like, can you keep my attention? Can you be interesting enough to keep my attention to read for hours at a time? And this book actually did. Well, and I think... And I love that you mentioned it's attention span because I think that there's this okay boomer mentality of like, hey, young kids have no attention span. Whereas the younger kids are like, no, look, we have access to everything ever. So is what you're doing actually good enough in the moment? And so it's an interesting, like the bar has been raised, I think, just as much as our attention span has been lowered. I agree with you completely. I love it. All right. So um, for those of you that didn't read the book, we're talking No Rules Rules, written by Reed Hastings and Aaron the CEO Meyer. of Netflix and Aaron Meyer, right? Nope. Yeah, Aaron Meyer. And Aaron Meyer, the author of, I'm going to butcher it, it was Culture Map. Culture, okay. Culture Map. So in essence, they talk about how Netflix is different, some of the things Netflix has done to jump uh, ahead of the group. And so we wanted to talk, Billy and I here are chatting about how that relates to law firms. So it's really cool from a Netflix perspective to say, okay, you're in charge of all of our non-original uh, programming in Brazil. You can sign this $50 million contract for it and put that on somebody who doesn't firm up their superiors. I think it's a little bit different from the law firm perspective from an ethics issue because we can be held bar card ethically responsible for the decisions of our employees. So what's your, what's your thought in your firm, Billy, when it comes to 
allowing for decision-making in the context of those requirements. So there, there's a chapter on leading with context versus leading with control. And um, they talk about like the travel policy, their travel policy at Netflix, they don't have, or expense reimbursement. They allow people to make a judgment call on how they want to spend money. And but you have to give enough context to your employees so that they can be spending money within the guidelines that you provide. And then they also say, if we if we feel like you're spilling, stealing money or abusing this policy, you're fired. No questions asked. You're fired. So um, that's a lot of pressure on bosses to do a good job. And and I have to say, one of my biggest takeaways, so Netflix has like a no an unlimited vacation policy, which is another leading with context instead of control. I used to have an unlimited vac vacation policy when my law firm was younger and I did not have, I, it was not a good enough policy to grow with us. So the thing that I learned from Netflix is like, if you want to have a, a policy that's hands-off, you must put enough context in place for people to know how to execute. And I had failed at that as a boss. So they have a lot of context that they give people when they say things like you can take unlimited vacation or you can spend whatever you want, but don't mess it up. What did you think? Well, so it was interesting. And I want to give people the specific example. So originally the spending policy was spend Netflix money as if it was your own, which sounds good until you realize people, some people spend their own money, like it's going out of style. Um, so then that tweak to, are you spending money in Netflix's best interest? And so by switching it that way, it was a lot easier to say, hey, look, you don't have to fly first class if you're coming in the day before a meeting. However, if you're you know, flying a red eye overnight and you've got a big presentation in another country, then okay, flying first class or business class to be able to sleep makes sense. Uh, so I love that from that perspective. From the law firm perspective, I thought the interesting part there was where they talk about different departments might have slightly different contexts. And mm -hmm. so like, I don't, you know, I don't think we're any better than anybody else because we're attorneys versus paralegal staff, whatever, but you may truly have a reason for a different level of context. So if you've got two attorneys at the firm, it's a lot easier to say both of you cannot be out at the same time versus if you have four paralegals, it might be harder to say two of you can't be out at any given time. So you really have to talk about the context that makes sense for your firm or for that department or for that, you know, um, position because it becomes a little bit different in terms of, you know, what you need on the day to day. The other thing that they talked about was how, if you are dealing with issues that require compliance, safety issues, liability issues, you can lead with a lot more control than if you're trying to deal with matters of art in matters of art and creativity, where you want maximum creativity, you need to give people the freedom to create but when you're talking about how to keep, you know, medicine safe or nuclear bombs safe or protecting a law firm from liability and lawsuits, you may need a whole lot more control. That really resonated with me. I, that made a lot of sense for me. There are things that I require of my lawyers that are non-negotiable because they protect the clients and they protect the firm. And then there's everything else that they can have freedom to decide how they want to do. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for lawyers, I think the easiest thing is confidentiality, right? Like you probably need a control policy on not disclosing clients information in, you know, except for the specific circumstances of bar rules um, and for cybersecurity issues and disclosing passwords and all that, like that's probably a control issue. But from a leading by context, the vacation policy, the expense policy, maybe what motions you do file, you know, maybe there's the baseline 
that malpractice says, you know, for divorces, you have to do mandatory disclosure that at least includes these 25 questions. And then you give them context to figure out what other questions to ask or request or something along those lines. So I think that's probably the, the safe way for a lawyer to do it or a law firm to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, it also is just really about culture. So I just did this culture presentation at ClioCon. And one of the things that I learned about culture is that there are four main types of culture, four overarching types. Um, the clan culture is a, a clan, a, you know, you all, you're all in it together. You're a small group. Everybody works for the good of everybody, sort of a, a communist style, like, you know, all for one and one for all. Then there's a um, bureaucracy, no, a hierarchical culture. A hierarchical culture is like very traditional corporate structure, right? You've got levels of, of um, approval and authority, and that makes a whole lot of sense. Then there's a ad hocracy, which is a Google or an Apple culture. I think modern law is kind of an ad hocracy where we've kind of grown out of being a clan, but we try to have as few rules as possible. And then the fourth one is a market culture. And Netflix is a market culture. And a market culture doesn't even make five-year plans because they're always adjusting to the mar market. It's the most volatile, the most creative, the most fast-moving culture. So that's an interesting thing to think about when we think about our law firm cultures. Like which, which of these four hats like works for you as the law firm owner or you as the employee? Well, and I think that's such a specific, I love the way that you phrase that with the you as the owner, you as the lawyer, because the problem that I see a lot of firms running into is you as the lawyer and owner, make yourself the bottleneck of almost everything. And then the firm is so slow to pivot when COVID hits, to make changes for things to get done while you're stuck in court, a trial runs long and somebody else can't do the consults, things like that. Um, so the more that you can at least get the day-to-day -day things and the, let's call it common emergencies, right? Like if you do family law, you're going to get the phone call about somebody not showing up you know, showing up five minutes late, you do PI, you're going to get calls from people that are immediately on the side of the road in an accident. So like those sorts of things, as long as you can get those as distributed as possible, you can give yourself a little bit more time to be hands-on where you have to be to slowly transition to being more hands-off. And I don't know if that goes into which of your four cultures well, that I think goes that, to. Well, I think those types of lawyers are probably pretty structured, pretty traditional, pretty hierarchical. And that will work when you have a company and a law firm that has all of those people in all of those places and all of those roles, right? So I think many lawyers are very traditional and very hierarchical and they make themselves that bottleneck, but like you can't move quickly. Like there's advantages and disadvantages to each of these cultures. And you pointed out some disadvantages to being very, very traditional, very hierarchical. And do you all, you all do traction stuff, right? We do. So that's what I love about traction, right? It's like, okay, you, and, and I think at a smaller law firm, you probably wear a couple of different hats. But like, I don't mean you specifically, but like every lawyer listen to this. So there's that interesting standpoint of like, okay, from the visionary perspective, you got to hit your vision traction organizer. You got to hit your quarterly rocks that you can then disseminate to everybody else. And in a small law firm, you may also be the managing partner. You may also be the fulfillment doing the work that part of you may not be able to have the same bottlenecks or the same final decision-making because you can't just carve out every quarter 
to do the rock updates, to do the vision traction organizer, to do the high level visionary things. And so sometimes you may actually be placing yourself in different parts of the potential culture because of holding different hats, but doing them for different purpose. I really like that. Makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, it's, I have made a lot of problems and now I get to talk to a bunch of lawyers through their problems. Um, so it's cool to see, like we have, we have the benefit of as lawyers, we tend to have the same problems and that's good because it makes it easy to, for them to solve. Like you're not walking into the doctor's office and be like, Hey, congratulations. You have Jordan Ostroff disease. We've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. You're walking in and having the, Hey, we've seen this a thousand times. This is the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times I think it's, it's being, it's being less micromanaging on the stuff you don't have to, so that you don't miss the things you do have to micromanage to some extent on an ethics position. Right. Absolutely. And so figuring out, you know, from a high level, what must I have policies in place that are controlling? What must I require? And what can I allow other people to do with the right guidelines? And then how do I articulate those guidelines? And also, when you find yourself in a position like I was, where the policy you had that you believed in, like unlimited vacation, wasn't working, you have two choices. I didn't know that what I could do is come up with more context. And now I know that. So like in my work from home policy, I've come up with all the context I need in order to make work from home work for 30 or 40 people. But I, I, it took me a while to do that. So just knowing that you have options, if, if you have a belief and you can't figure out how to support that belief, it could be that you don't need a rule, you need more context. Which like, I mean, the other example they give that I think is the best is um, they've, got the, they've got the critic coming in to review House of Cards in 4K and maintenance throws out the 4K TV. So somebody the night before like sees that it's gone, drives over to Best Buy, drops like 2,500 bucks on this brand new TV because that was the only way to allow this critic to watch it in the format that it was entirely created for. Um, and so like you want to be able to empower people to make decisions like that, which is obviously right in retrospect. But in the moment, it's really tough to say like, all right, go run out and spend 2,500 bucks. But like that had to happen in this situation or they would have completely you know, blown this you know, multi-million dollar opportunity for launching 4K TVs for Netflix streaming, you know, for all of that stuff. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because there are times when our people will go out on a limb and make a decision and it will be wrong. And many times bosses will have the instinct to correct. But if you do that, your people will be afraid to make decisions and there will be missed opportunities. So if you're Netflix, if you're a market culture and you have to move fast, in order to succeed as Netflix, you have to move fast. You can't afford to take away that decision-making. If your law firm, if you have no intention of growing fast, then maybe you can afford, and maybe it is in line with your culture to say, you don't want people making decisions. You want them to wait for you, but there will be missed opportunities that come from that. Totally. Well, and it's, and I go back to, we have ethical rules and I, and anybody who's going to even tell you to sort the rules, I think is being short-sighted and stupid about it. But at the same time, I think so many lawyers create this additional belief. Like I can't do X because it would be unethical when it's not, it right. would just be more difficult to do. Right. So, and again, like, I'm not saying that from the standpoint of skirting rules. I'm saying that from the standpoint of like, I've talked to lawyers who are like, I can't post on social media. That's unethical in my state. And I'm like, no, it's not. You just can't say like, hey, I represent John Doe and John Doe just had this happen to them and yada, yada, yada. So 
finding it as an excuse. Know the rules, know them inside and out and, and don't use it as an excuse. I totally agree with you. People, lawyers miscite the ethics rules all the time, especially conservative lawyers. You know, who doesn't skirt the ethics rules? like very progressive lawyers who know who are pushing the limits. Why? Because they need to know those rules. They're pushing the limits. And the funny part is, so in like in Florida and most of the states will be like this, you have an obligation to make sure anybody working for you is familiar with the rules. And so you get all these attorneys are like, oh, that's against the rules. And you're like, okay, have you talked to your staff about this rule? They're like, no. Okay, but the rule requires that anybody who's working for you be able to follow this or anybody who's dealing with your trust account know these rules. And all this stuff. So you can actually use the rules to create this context rather than you just having the control of this has to go through me. Right. I totally agree with you. I think that lawyers get real confused about their ethical obligations a lot. (laughs) Totally. All right. So um, anything else from the leading by context or control part about it or the decision-making, pushing decision-making down, or let's transition into the employee's pay and the keeper test? Let's talk about pay and bonuses and the keeper test and candor. All right. So start us off. What's what's Netflix's uh, expectation of their employees? So Netflix has a pretty high expectation of their employees. They view themselves as an elite sports team. If you are a solid B plus player, that will get you a generous severance package. They only want the best. With that, they also don't pay bonuses. So <laughs> what do you think of that? So it's interesting. So, okay. So I love, I love the sports analogy because I think law and sports are the only two things that are truly adversarial. Mm. So we can learn so much from sports. Now, the flip side is your struggling quarterback on your football team has access to hundreds of thousands of dollars and decades of experience in coaches and trainers and nutritionists and whatever. Your struggling law firm probably can't afford that much um, help. But I love that Netflix talks about it from the standpoint of the difference being you're not limited to a certain number of people. So if you have the Jack Welch running um, GE standpoint, where he cuts the bottom 10% every year, you're creating this competition over spots. You and your law firm, you don't have to do that. If you have eight rockstar employees, you could have 12 rockstar employees the next year and then 16 without having to you know, replace and remove everybody. So I think it's important to make sure your team is aware of that as you try to set this culture, that the more that you all grow the company, you're not growing somebody else into your job, you're growing yourself into a promotion um, and people to backfill. So then from the bonus perspective, it's interesting because then I think you go back to the like fee sharing with a non-lawyer rules. So there's a bunch of reasons not to, or there's a bunch of limitations on your ability to bonus people, depending upon your state. In Florida, you can't bonus somebody based upon a percentage of the case, even if they're your employee, but you can bonus them based upon the completion of certain tasks. So there's ways to make it sort of the same thing, just not, you know, not tying the specific amount. Um, so every state will be a little bit different, but at the same point, the more that you're looking for people to be creative, same thing, like the context by giving them a higher salary, you're not forcing them to hit a bonus, you know, whether that's closing 20 cases and then thereby not going to trial on two of them that should have gone so they can close their 20 to hit their metric to get their bonus, as opposed to just paying people extra to give yourself, you know, the cream of the crop. Uh, it's a very interesting balance test. Yeah. And there's studies that show people working under 
pressure to do creative tasks, shut down. Don't get as good of results, even when they're offered money. But that's not true for rote tasks. You know, put together these, you know, this thing that you know how to put together. You'll put together more of those if you're paid to put together more of those. But if you're given a complex test that you have to solve creatively, you're less likely to get the best result with a bonus. Netflix is a creative culture. What's lawyers? I'm not sure. What do you think? It's a hybrid. I mean, I it's think so like, from, from what you all, I know you talk to so many people about intake and whatnot. So I think you could bonus your a staff member on the number of shock and off or the timeline it takes them to send out a shock and off package to all of your clients. You've got a thousand prior clients. If they can knock it out in eight hours, they can get a bonus. If you have a lot, 10 hours for it, you can give them the two hours as a bonus. But when it comes to the soft skills of the closing of the actual conversation or the actual consultation, that's creative. You know, that's emotional. That's something where they're listening. The more that you try to force them to hit a certain number, resolve it in a certain time frame, put the pressure on it, the more you're going to cause them to make some sort of sacrifice uh, in favor of the numbers. Yeah. I think this is a hard one. I'll tell you, my bonus structures in my law firm have made me money. I know that without a doubt. I know when I incentivize people to hit their revenue goal and exceed it, and then I pay them a percentage above their revenue goal, they work harder, they make me more money. Is Does that lead to better lawyering? I can't answer that. Well, but let's say, so if they're a $50,000 employee and you're offering them a 20% bonus for hitting whatever it is, so that puts them at 60, just for the sake of, of numbers, do you think that you could find somebody for $60,000 who would do better work than the $50,000 person with the $20,000 incentive? Because that's kind of the, that's the analysis. Like, I don't think they're saying that the bonus is the problem. I think they're saying that you could find the person who doesn't need the incentive in a creative manner or doesn't want the incentive in a creative manner to outperform anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible. So, I mean, let's just, instead of taking the $50,000 employees, let's talk about lawyers. Like if I, if I pay the lawyers, you know, a salary plus a bonus of when they exceed their revenue goal, they might get up to $200,000. If I go out and I hire somebody and I pay them $200,000, are they going to be a better employee? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So it like, cause it's interesting, you know, I had, um, I had Brooke Lively on a show a couple months ago and she was talking about the pod system from the standpoint of allowing every pod to sort of be their own firm and like where you can give them some of the flexibility. And so there's an interesting way, like Netflix talks about getting the decision-making into more hands where you could prioritize like, okay, you are my, you know, for, for your case, you are my family law in Glendale. You are the one in Tempe. You are the one in, you know, Tucson or whatever it's going to be. And then give them more flexibility inside that community to market, to charge, to do consults, pro bono days, whatever it's going to be. It'd be interesting to see how that would work if you don't give them the incentive based upon the revenue stuff from it. But knew that you could get the best person for it. And I don't know how you would test that because you really wouldn't know until hindsight and you wouldn't have both people to make the comparison anyway. Yeah, it's a tough call. It's a it's an interesting thing. You know, people love bonuses, but people also love stability and it depends on the person. Some people love stability. They just want a salary. 
They don't want to have to worry about a bonus. Other people are wired and they're competitive and they want that bonus. And um, I'm not sure that the studies really took into account that <laughs> when they determined right. that people don't work creatively for, for bonuses. So just, it's an interesting, you know, I don't know, I don't know where this one comes out because so much of law has the soft skills. Like, mm -hmm. yes, there's a rules when we build it, but there's the consultation for the client. There's filing that extra, you know, the motion to compel on something versus allowing a little bit more time negotiating a PI settlement for, you know, up to the policy limit or above it with bad faith. Um, so there's some interesting concepts of how much you want to allow your lawyers and your firm to be creative and where you want to make sure that they're repetitively consistent. Mm -hmm. I want to try to phrase that in a way where it's not obviously the, the worst answer because there's merits to both. I just think it's interesting. I think from a lawyer perspective, I'm more with you on the unknown. From a staff perspective, especially with COVID, especially with work from home, especially with the flexibility, you could have these firms in California contact somebody in Iowa who is the best paralegal in Iowa, offer them 30% above market, which still might be 30% below market for there, and have some rock star super oh, yeah. quickly. Oh, yeah. So I'm a huge fan of that model. I do it. I love it. I think it's great. Um, I think we can get people all over the world now, really all over the world and great, great people. The key That's true. We should talk about. So they don't, because they only keep the creme de la creme. If you're not, you, you might be fired at any moment without any notice. They don't owe you a performance improvement plan. And they're, they're hundred percent against those performance improvement plans. So if you are not cutting it, you are subject to being canned. And the way they determine that is the keeper test. And the keeper test says, if somebody came to you and resigned, would you fight to keep them? And if not, if you would not fight to keep this person, they got to go. I, I think that there are so many firms that take the scared answer to that which is not being willing to pay people what they're worth, thinking that they can replace them close enough. And to be honest, I've done it. I definitely have done it. And in retrospect, I regret it every time. In the moment, I thought I was doing what was right. You mean, wait a second, uh, but it wasn't. So somebody came to you and they resigned and you didn't fight to keep them? Is that what you're saying? Correct. Or we, or we, put a position up with a salary that was lower than what we could have to attract somebody who would have been a better fit yeah. out of projections, out of finances, out of fear, concern, whatever. So I'm, by no means do I think I'm the expert on this. That's a great point. So I, I threw up a job the other day for a bookkeeper because I wanted to take bookkeeping in-house. Indeed told me what to offer. It felt low, but I went with what Indeed, you know, told me to offer, which was low. It was like, I don't know. It was like, 15 to 20 bucks an hour or something. I'm not going to get anybody who's super great for 15 to $20 an hour. Like there's no professionals in, in my area who work for that, but I did it and I didn't get great candidates. So it was just a waste of time. Yeah. But that was, that was a job site telling you they knew what the job market would request. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. Like, and so to be, to be clear from Netflix standpoint, the keeper stuff comes out of them having to fire or whatever it was, 30% of the workforce or something like that at one point and realizing it didn't make a difference because everybody else stepped up. They, you know, they, they called the people. And so they were able to use VC money, which we don't have access to for firms, although 
I don't know, Utah, Arizona, you may all, you all may be uh, in, in the line for that. Um, so there's an interesting concept in that of physical financial ability to maintain people. But even if you just had the thought process, even if you just went through all of your employees and said, Hey, if they came to me tomorrow and said they found another job, would I fight to keep them? Or how seriously would it be? Um, even if you're not in the position to give them the raise immediately now for anything, it's interesting to get your feedback on it. You know, I will tell you for my law firm, definitively, like my wife would go to war for all of our employees. And like, not, not that I wouldn't, but she's working with them on the day to day and I'm a lot more removed from it. And so reading the book, I was like, all right, so, you know, Hey, Chelsea Williams, you got my books for next year. Like, what can we do to give them a raise just to be like, Hey, I, whether you're looking or not, I don't care. Here's an extra 5,000. Here's an extra 10,000, like whatever it is, because I know I would try to keep you even at that price. You know, Netflix talks about if market rate goes up, you just give a market rate. Like you, you tell them to speak to recruiters. You tell them to, you know, do the conversation about jobs, see what the salary is and then get moved up to it. Um, and it's a really interesting way to be fair, you know, as opposed to every year they get a 3% raise when they could right. go somewhere else for 50% more. Right. I, I think everybody should be looking at their comp model right now because the, the financial markets are wonky. The consumer price index is crazy. The great resignation is real and not over. People are looking to make moves. The relationships between employer and employee has changed a lot. And that's what the keeper test is really about. Like, what's your relationship between your employer and employees? And this idea that like people stay with companies forever, that was gone a long time ago. Now we're at a whole new level of people will dump you in a heartbeat for something that meets their needs better. So you have to determine like, what is the relationship that I have with my employees? Who do I want to keep and foster? Who's bringing my company down? What do I do about it? And to be fair, this, this works in both directions mm -hmm. because your employee can find a job at 50% more. You could find somebody in Mexico or the Philippines for three to whatever dollars an hour. Um, and so that's why like, I, was, I always talk to my employees all the time about their soft skills. Like if you can generate business, you will always have a job. I don't care if you answer the phone. I don't care if you're a paralegal, legal assistant, runner, lawyer, whatever. If you can generate business because you know people in the community, I will make room for you. Because at the very least, you're covering your salary or you're, get, or you're offsetting it or whatever it looks like. Somebody for three bucks an hour in another country isn't going to be able to do that. They're, you know, they're not going to have the connections in the community. So you could, in theory, find, let's say you have 10 employees. Five of them are phenomenal. You give all of them a $10,000 raise. You take the other five. You get rid of them because they're not to the same standard. You move all those jobs offshore. And you could actually save money. And so I don't, I'm not recommending that you do that. What I'm saying though, is you have to understand that balance works in both directions, your employee having more power or less power because of globalization. Absolutely true. And there's something to be said for what you just said, like pay your best people the most you can. And each spot on your team is valuable. There should, nobody should be on your team taking up space, taking up money. If they're not valuable, if they're not you know, the best fit for your firm. The only thing I'll push back on that is I think that you want to make sure you are providing the most benefit to your best employees, oh, because yeah. for some people, it's not, it's not just money. Like there's, 
you know, there's a, whatever, there's a study that found like $67,000, like up to that point, money automatically makes you happy or statistically makes you happier. After that point, it tails off. So you may have employees that would prefer to work 35 hours a week so they can pick up their kids from school every afternoon. Or you might have employees that would prefer the unlimited vacation policy or prefer um, healthcare assistance or 401k, whatever that is. So really knowing what's going to be the most valuable thing to them and trying to prioritize those things to keep them happy, to keep them, you know, not worrying about their home situation. And then you have them not worry about the work situation. Then they're happy people. They live better lives and they're, they stay with you longer and they produce better because they're truly physically happier. It's a great point. Not everybody wants the same thing. And most people will tell you if you ask them. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and look, we're coming up on the holidays. Um, and so it's funny to me how many firms are like, here's the bonus, you know, this is what it is. As opposed to asking employees, like, would you rather we throw a giant party? Would you rather we have, do this? Would you rather we go to a fancy restaurant and bring all the spouses and kids? Like, what's the thing that moves the needle the most? Because honestly, like, there are sometimes, you know, I, I, the firms that I love the thing that some firms do where they go to the local mall and they're like, everybody has 200 bucks, but you have to spend it on yourself in the next couple hours. It's just like to buy that stupid thing you would never buy. Um, but at the same time, if you've got somebody who's struggling to buy a, a, something for their kids because of the spouse being laid off, because you don't pay them that much because they're taking care of a sick parent or something like that, or they've got bills from, you know, COVID, they may be better off with 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, or they may be better off with you, you know, taking them and their kids to or in Orlando. So Disney or SeaWorld or something like that for a day and making the whole thing out of it. Um, sometimes you just have to ask. It's a great point. It's a great point. I really like that. I hadn't thought about the mall idea. I've never heard that. I love that. So you have to spend it on yourself. So if somebody wants to buy stuff for their kids, you don't let them. I, I, so I've never done it. I just, every time I hear somebody else say it, I'm like, that's awesome. And maybe we'll do it this year. I don't know. Maybe I'll do um, it. <laughs> I asked, well, it's fun. I asked, uh, so actually we do, we do Monday meetings for the firm and the marketing company. So this morning I asked like, what would be the thing that you would never spend on yourself? And so somebody mentioned Louboutin shoes. Somebody mentioned a Disney pass. I mentioned the Disney Star Wars experience of like $5,000 for two days and I can't rationalize it despite anything else. I just, I, I don't know. I, that's my thing. And so it was like, I kept the list. So potentially that'll be everybody's, you know, in addition to some sort of bonus for Christmas, I'm not going to buy them the shoes, but maybe we'll go to a mall that has the place. I don't, I don't even know. I'm, I wear flip-flops that are $8 from Target. So like, this was not my wheelhouse right. to know how to deliver on it, but like, we'll find it, you know, we'll figure it out. Fun. I love that. So any other takeaways from the book? We've got 10 minutes or so. Did we cover all of the stuff? Let me see the list. Yeah. Well, let's talk about candor. Okay. Um, they view candor differently than the rest of us. Um, feedback, you have a moral obligation mm. to the company to yourself and to your coworkers to give them feedback on everything at all times. They in, don't have to in, in a productive manner. There's the, uh, the actionable, the five, the four A's. Yes. Which I'm blanking on now. It's, is it achievable? So it needs to be, um, specific behavioral changes they can make. So you can't comment on somebody's attitude. You can't, you know, you, but you can tell them at any time in front of anyone you know, hey, your your stuff's not, this is not good. Your paper's not landing. The argument you're making is not connecting with your audience. Try again. 
which is which is radical. Like that's not normal. But it makes sense. It does, doesn't like, it? If and it's it's a little bit different, right? Because they're talking about like if you're sitting in the in India pitching this show or hearing back this stuff and you're not culturally connecting or you're checked out, like somebody, you know, can make the difference. So it's probably most akin to like being in court. You know, like if you're in court and you're zoning out and it's your witness and you're supposed to be objecting, like that feedback has to happen immediately. But in a smaller way, it's going to impact everything in the firm. Like if you hear somebody answer the phone and they're not answering the phone with the right tone, if you don't let them know, every other client that day gets the wrong tone as opposed to fixing it. Right. Um, which don't get me wrong, it's terrifying to give people feedback. It's mm-hmm. probably easier as the boss than it is as the employee too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I can't tell you I ever gave any of my bosses feedback when I had bosses. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure, but <laughs> but it's huge because you'll see things differently. And we talk about we talk about diversity all the time. And it's so weird to me because like we try and make that just into like people who look different, but it's also people who think differently, who see things differently, who experience things differently. So why not take this feedback from people um, with different backgrounds from you, with different interests with you, with different training than you, whatever it's going to be, because sometimes they might be more right about your ideal client's belief on something. Yeah, absolutely. And you have the ability to learn nuance, you know, to get more valuable. Every time you get feedback, it's like having an extra coach. And, you know, we, I don't know. I was an athlete growing up. Were you? I, you, I mean, I played soccer, but like, if you see me, you it go. wasn't like, it wasn't yeah. at a high level. Well, or teachers, you know, different teachers provided different feedback to you. And it wasn't all valuable in the exact same way, but cumulatively that value that you gained was huge because people were giving you feedback, but we get to be an adult. And in our culture as Americans, we sort of shut up and mind our own business and then just bitch about each other behind our back. (laughs) And that is not, that doesn't move anybody forward. It doesn't solve anybody's problem. Unless you're a New Yorker or a transplanted New Yorker in South Florida, then we'll bitch to your face. Great. I prefer, no, I, but it's, inter- it's interesting because then obviously like, so Netflix is a very multicultural company having so many different programming for different cultures. And so they talk about how like Americans are thought to be more aggressive with the feedback. So if you're dealing with somebody who's from Germany, they're like, there is no feedback. Um, and so it's funny to see like you and I are sitting here. I'm totally in agreement with you that most of the time it's that it's either passive aggressive or it's talking behind somebody's back. But if you have somebody who's here newly from another country, it might even like even that might be too much for them or no, not what they're used to. Um, and so just something to keep in mind about the feedback. But the more that you build a feeling of safety and security at your company, the mm-hmm. easier it is to get and receive feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, if people don't think they're going to get fired tomorrow because they made this mistake and got this feedback, it's a lot easier for them to hear it. Let's talk about that for a minute. What are your best tips on creating psychological safety at work? So the best opportunity that we ever had to do that was on March 11th of 2020 when COVID first hit. And not that I did it intentionally, but in retrospect, like I told everybody, look, you're not cutting, I'm not cutting anybody's salary for as long as I possibly can. When we got the PPP stuff, I confirmed for everybody, you are all, you have a job here with no issues for the next two months for, you know, by any means, I'll cut my own salary first. And so that I hope gave people some semblance of security because like I would have the conversation with my wife, like in all honesty, she owns the other half of the firm. So this was a a firm conversation. I was like, in all honesty, if push comes to shove for eight months, we're going to have jobs and eventually they're not. 
And so it was like, what can I do to give them the security in as long a term as I can? If it's, you're good for the next 30 days, you're good for the next 60 days. Like we've got cases coming, like whatever it was. Um, I try to do that to give people that sense of security. And from that, I mean, we didn't lose anybody of the great resignation because these were people that understood when the roles were reversed, we put them first. So they were nice enough, the right fit enough, like whatever you want to call it, um, to do the same. And so it's, it's easier to be a good leader in hard times mm-hmm. than it is in easy times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. In hard times, what do you do? How do you show up? How do you address people when they're coming to you and they're going through a mental health crisis or whatnot? That's how you create safety. Yeah. Well, and the, the longer of a view that you could take, and I want to be clear, if you just open your firm or if you are struggling to put food on the table, you may not be able to take that long of a view. I get that. Right. And I think there's, uh, I think people lose sight of like, we have a mortgage, we have a family, we have college funds, whatever the quicker that you can take a longer view. And then that becomes a three month view and a six month view and a year view and a five year view, whether that's your plan or not, but that you can make decisions that look that way, the easier it is to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are looking at, is this person going to be an employee with me for the next 20 years versus mm-hmm. how am I going to make their bonus this month? That's mm-hmm. a much different analysis that you can have. And so, you know, to, to not answer your question, but to answer your question about the culture stuff, in a lot of those moments, it's like, is this the right decision for the next year, the next five years, the next 10, even if they're not here, even if they're somewhere else, even if the firm, even if, even if self-driving cars completely destroy the PI industry, like, is this the right decision to make now for as long of you as you can, uh, becomes easier. I love that. It's good stuff, Jordan. Thank you. What about you? What do you, what do you do in a build a culture? Now for anybody who doesn't know Billy, at all the conferences, Billy has like a whole entourage of like a bunch of team members that have come with her because they love her because she wants people to learn because it's for their benefit. Uh-huh. And so it's really cool to like hear them talk about Billy to your face or behind your back, obviously in po- like positive things the whole way through. So I know you're doing a ton of great things here. I, I just try to invest in individuals. I try to invest in their growth. I try to promote them individually um, and make it a you know, a place that offers the maximum flexibility possible while also protecting the clients of the company. So that's the way that I look at it. Like I want to give people maximum freedom in terms of how and when they work. Um, you know, like I don't think we have to control people's schedules. And I think that that goes a long way. That type of flexibility really, really goes a long way in helping people. At the same time, my biggest problem is not offering enough structure to make people comfortable. So- mm. You know, like, like, like any, you know, I don't, I don't, I have four kids and to me running the law firm and running a household of children feels so similar. Like you want these people to grow, you love them. You're working all towards this direction, but like, you know, people do want structure and they want accountability and they want fairness. And so you have to balance all those things. But you could fire underperforming employees a lot easier than you could fire underperforming children. Oh yeah. That, I mean, they're not really the same. <laughs> But no, but, but they are from the standpoint of you should have, you should care about their future. Now, hopefully that future is with you or hopefully that future is carrying on, you know, your name or whatever from your kid's standpoint. But like the more that you have that genuine interest in them, 
for more than just like, they do this task for me right now, the better I think it is for everybody. I'm sure there are people that just want to cash a check, but that's not the culture that I want. So those aren't the people that I bring in. Right. And, you know, you know, your children, you can't fire them, but they are their own person and they're going to grow up and they're going to do their own thing and they're going to make their own decisions. And the same thing is true for your employees. They're not there to be your little minions or like to execute your instructions, you know, flawlessly every time they're their own person with their own, you know, whole unique complex thing going on. So that brings up an interesting point um, from something you said there and before. I don't remember, was the Johnson and Johnson credo in the Netflix book? I think it was, or, but yes, or another book I read called, uh, the culture code. I know it comes up, it comes up a bunch. So for those of you that don't know, Johnson and Johnson has a specific credo. It's like a page or two. And it's like, when push comes to shove, this is what we follow. And so it talks about like, um, first, first we care about the users of our products. Then we care about our employees and it goes through and it gives like context behind it. Um, and so they talk about it from the standpoint of the Tylenol recall in the 60s when somebody not related to Johnson & Johnson um, t- tampered with a bunch of Tylenol and poisoned people. They recalled all the Tylenol because they went to their credo and the credo said, you care about the user first, mm-hmm. which was the important thing to do versus caring about the shareholder versus prioritizing you know, the money that it cost them to pull the stuff off the table. And so I was curious about what you talked about before. Is there is there like a modern law credo? Oh, there is, yeah. We have a constitution. Ah, there we go. Constitution. So it started out with our values, you know, and a lot of firms have values, but they might be like one word. Our values are like paragraphs. Like, what do we believe in? How does this get executed? And then, and then there was also, you know, the handbook evolved and it needed to have requirements as well. Cause I was always big on beliefs, low on rules. That's just me as a human. Well, we needed rules. And, and if you look at the Constitution of the United States, it starts off with a preamble, lead the police people in order to, you know, form a more perfect union. So modern law is like, here's why we exist. So we have our mission, which is our preamble. We have our structure, which is here's how the here's how the firm works. Here's what's required of you. Here's the governance. Here's who we fall under. And then the values. Here's what we believe. So we have a Constitution. Highly recommend. <laughs> I love it. I don't have a Constitution. I've, I've been, we have core values and I've been hammering out at Credo, but yeah, I love that. And then now, now that you phrase it, I'm going to start it with we the people in an effort to form a more perfect law firm. Do you hear why? There you go. Got to start out with the grammatical uh, screw up that is more perfect. All right. <laughs> All right. So for anybody who's enjoyed this, highly recommend the no rules rules. And then um, I was sharing this with Billy and I don't know that I'll put this in the video, but I also then uh, read team of teams right before it. So that's about how we defeated the Taliban and, um, and ISIS in Iraq. The same book, like literally the same book. They had this hierarchical decision that all everything went up to generals and they moved a lot of the decision-making down. It, there were so many things that overlap. Um, and because it talks about like how important efficiency became and now we really care more about creativity and flexibility to make the decisions, make the pivots, do the right thing for the client, yada, yada, yada. So if you're interested in another book from a military perspective that tells you the same stuff, as a book from the Netflix streaming God's perspective, uh, recommend that as well. So for anybody who's listened, who is smart enough to know that they want to learn more expert wisdom from you, Billy, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Mm, I'm pretty easy to find. If you just Google Billy Tarasio, you will find me absolutely everywhere. Contact me on any social media platform or email me, whatever you want. I'm around, easy to find. There you go. And if you want to follow a really cool TikTok account, Billy has 
an incredible, incredible TikTok. I want to say persona, but like it's you. So it's not just for TikTok. It just plays so well um, to that audience about what you're talking about from family law. And it's just, it's, it's cool to follow. Thanks. Thanks. I really, really enjoy it. It is definitely my favorite social media platform of all of them. It is a good time. There we go. All right. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Exhibit A Attorneys. If you're interested in becoming the Exhibit A of a successful attorney, please check us out at LegalEaseMarketing.com, E-A-S-E.